I turned off and he turned on. The unique and wonderful thing about practice, and maybe even about being a human being, is that our difficulties become the cause of our heart opening. The difficulties become the cause of our happiness. And I think we may be the only species where that is true. And the fact that you even let yourself, to use a word that Eugene uses, saturate in the whole experience that you were having today, and you stayed with it. Um, You were actually, um, in a sense, sitting in the, what Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, called the manure of Bodhi, the fertilizer of awakening. And interestingly enough, when I looked around the room, even after 24 hours, there is, in spite of whatever you may have experienced today, there is, a, at least to me, a beautiful light, a light that that lives inside of you, lives inside of me, but that light is shining a little bit brighter. Because whether you knew it or not, slowly, slowly over the course of this day, you've been orienting yourself to the reality of the present moment. And in a way, as one teacher put it, brushing the dust of memory so that the clear mirror of your mind could be laid bare. And it's so interesting how, how all of us, to a degree, the more we orient to reality, wake up to reality, uh, the more there is this within us, uh, this light. We call it sometimes the light of awareness. I was thinking about a passage from a teacher, uh, an Indian teacher named Nisargadat, where he said, if you keep your mind present, in other words, are somewhat, as many moments as possible, free of your preoccupations, where you're just waking up again and again, you will discover that your mind is permeated with a light and a love you've never known, yet you recognize it at once as your own nature. So once you've tasted that a little bit, uh, you'll never be the same person again, he says. Says the unruly mind will break that peace and obliterate that vision, but it's bound to return if the effort is sustained until all bonds are broken, grasping and attachment ends. You know, it's a whole elaborate thing, he says. But he finally says that life is simply immersed, um, passionately immersed in the present. So we can see, as the Buddha saw, We can even see in this room tonight that when our mind is momentarily free of its preoccupations, when we're actually here, we can see after our last thought has stopped and before the next one comes, check it out for a minute, is there's a kind of vividness, a sense of immediacy, kind of aliveness. And this aliveness, this vividness, this clarity, it's never really altered. It's it's natural. It's 
your natural state. It's available to us, in other words. But what is true also is that we are not in the habit of staying here. Not in the habit of just staying awake to our natural state, to the natural mind of the Buddha. As one teacher, uh, Dujum Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, says, isn't it true that a thought suddenly arises in this, into this openness? And, uh, and if that thought is, um, uh, is noticed, it's just another experience to notice. It's just knowing and a thought. No problem at all. Do you have a few of those today? A thought and knowing of it. In fact, somebody said we have 65,000 of those every day, whether you're a, a new meditator or an old meditator. And that supposedly 90% of those are repeats from the day before. <laughs> so thinking is a, a natural part of this, this experience of being um, awake. Sometimes it's after the last thought has passed and before the next one comes, we, we sense the, the vividness of awareness. And if we are able to just see the, the thoughts as, as they arise, as they appear and disappear like clouds passing through the sky, no problem. They're inseparable from that natural openness that made it possible for those thoughts to be noticed. So no awareness, no awareness of thoughts. But he also says, if that thought goes unnoticed, it spreads out into what he called ordinary thinking, which he also described as the chain of delusion. We literally enter into a dreamscape. And as one of my teachers says, we've been practicing living in that dreamscape for 35 million years. Last time I used that, number, which is, of course, he's full of hyperbole. He said 35 million years. Somebody said, well, human beings have only been around 7 million. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. It's been a long, long time. <laughs> and for a long time, we have wandered uh, confused, wandered around living in a kind of virtual reality, overlooking this vital point of, of this natural mind of the Buddha. So when the Buddha awakened in the midst of a, a life that's in some ways like ours, uh, he realized that uh, everything, that all the searching, that he, all that longing that he had been doing for happiness, in fact, he was called Sukhiya, the happy one, all that longing for happiness culminated in the realization that the very happiness that he had been searching for was none other than the very nature of his own mind, here and now, not to be found anywhere else. And he, as he explored the nature of his mind, he saw that it did not have, and this is a way that it's described differently in different traditions, that he saw that it didn't have any um, 
height or depth or color or form or inside or outside. It was free. The nature of each of our minds is free. We can't find a limit to it. We can't find anywhere where our mind is bound in real time. Like if you check out your own experience in real time, see if you can even find, if you're really present, if you can even find any suffering. You may find a lot of painful sensations, painful moods, burning, stabbing, itching, different reaction. But in the moment of simply being present with that, and where is in the immediate present the suffering of our life? So it depends to a certain degree on absent-mindedness. A lot of our suffering. So even though the Buddha realized that we are inherently or intrinsically free, deathless, unconditioned, he didn't talk about that right away. He didn't shout from the hilltops, you're free already. Why didn't he say that? Why didn't he immediately share the good news? Because he saw with what turns out to be when our mind is open, when we are more persistently resting in the, in the natural mind of the Buddha, we, exp- we see the world in a more unvarnished way. We see our own experience of our body. We see our mind. We see the universal. We see the immediate truths of our own experience. And with that unvarnished view of reality, we, all, we get all kinds of little epiphanies when our hearts and minds are open. And what he saw was that beings are just wandering in that, in that virtual reality. Wandering endlessly astray, looking for happiness in a future that never arrives. Because, of course, time is always just here. Reality is now. There's no future to speak of. That's just an idea. And there is no, by the same token, there's no past. That's another idea. Yet our mind constructs this whole universe of past, present, and future, moving from the past, passing through the present, on the way to the future. And that movement of mind constantly, I would say, I think it's reasonable to say, constantly being obsessed with what's next. Any of you relate to that at all? And of course, there is some pleasant feeling that arises from looking forward to things. And it's easy to use a word that Eugene used a lot, to get enchanted But when this is practiced over and over, it blinds us to the the dangers or the defects of associating our happiness with what's next. It blinds us to the ever-present available fact of uh, the natural happiness of a Buddha, the natural happiness of conscious 
being, being conscious, which I hope you recover while you're here. Don't underestimate the power of a few days. As Thich Nhat Hanh put it, you, not just that historical person, but you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. So the Buddha didn't start out by when he started disseminating what he had realized in the teachings. He didn't start out by sharing the good news. The good news was almost evident just in the radiance that he shared that, I start to, that I've seen already in you. And that we, you, that we all know as what gives us, I think I can speak for Eugene, what gives us a lot of confidence and faith in this process and the practices we see everyone confront all the difficulties of being in our bodies and our fatigue and our restlessness and the mind that has those 65,000 thoughts. And we see how the alchemy of present awareness meeting our experience with this natural uh, wakefulness and having our experience reflected in our mind moment by moment, it it turns, we, it's sometimes described as the Vipassana facelift. The eyes get brighter, but m- almost more importantly, more, more um, inspiring and heart-opening is the fact that everyone becomes so tender and that we are all in our root so sweet and tender when the conditions are safe and when our minds are not so preoccupied by our internal drama. So the Buddha started his teaching by, in some ways, sharing the things that he discovered through his own practice. And in some ways, they describe the evolution of his understanding as he went through his own holy longing. The first thing he talked about, the first truth that he shared, sometimes called the first noble truth, but he talked about this in so many different ways. But his central teaching, the first teaching that he gave in a sutra called the the Dhammachaka Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, He said, as he discovered, when his eyes began to open to the life inside of himself and all around, he saw that life, if you are born, has within it uh, things that are very difficult to bear. It is the definition of birth. The definition of birth is the leading cause of having stress the stress of being born, the stress of aging, of illness, stress of dying, the stress of not getting what you want, the stress of not wanting what you get. That if you are born, this comes with the territory. This is not weird. And it's not just you. Because if we don't know this to be true, 
if we are not in harmony with this truth. Our mind immediately goes into a search, innocently, a search for relief. But it often, part of that search for relief is because of the reaction of, of resistance to that, to that fact, from the reaction, a tension builds. And from that tension, we have a lot more discursive thinking. And part of that discursive thinking says there's something wrong here. And then that, the extension of that discursive thinking is there's something wrong with me. And it becomes all about me. All about my big issue. And I know everyone in this room has a big issue. And I'm not belittling that at all because we do have issues. But we tend to think about it in a very narrow vortex of our own internal drama and forget that this is universal. Everyone who is born is subject to things that are hard to bear. And the Buddha's, when he shared his teaching, it was because he saw what really woke him up was the seeing the reality of what he called the, the first, of, first three of the four heavenly messengers. He saw the reality of sickness, of old age, and death. He saw a corpse. He saw someone similar in age who was quite ill. He saw an extremely old person. And that seems strange that somebody who's 29 years old at the time of his, his beginning of his practice, that he would have been oblivious to that fact. Where none of us are intellectually oblivious to that fact, but we all have a capacity for a kind of self-deception that doesn't really deal with it exactly. Now, of course, there's a continuum. Some people have dealt with these realities. We've all dealt with these realities. And some, some of us, some of us, our eyes are more open than others, and, and that's just part of, the, part of our condition. But that reminded him that life has within it the reality of um, unreliability, of change, of what's sometimes described as unsatisfactoriness. And he thought to himself, if I'm going to get old, get sick, and die, and everything I seem to seek out in my life, you know, because basically what we're taught is to, is to link as many pleasurable moments together as possible. It seems like a reasonable cause of happiness. We sometimes joke about the perfect California or San Francisco or Marin County Day or wherever you happen to be, where you wake up and you have the perfect meal with the perfect fruit and vegetables and the massage and, the, and then the, listen to the perfect music and then have the perfect roll in the hay with your beloved and then the perfect whatever it is that you do. And the notion is that if you link enough of those moments together, you call yourself happy. And Unfortunately, the dependency on that kind of happiness, because the pleasures don't last so long, often leave, and they leave in their wake, a feeling of, oh, it went. 
And now I've got to think up another one. Now I have to think of another way to fill the, fill the void that has been left by the passing of the last experience. And pretty soon we're just a cavalcade of desires rolling through, being satisfied, losing, satisfied, over and over again. And no wonder, it's, there are amazing, there's an amazing range of pleasure that we can have as a human being. And the Buddha wasn't, uh, he saw that was one of the great kinds of ple- happiness that a person could have to be able to enjoy the world of sense pleasures. But he said, if you make this, if you put, as he called it, misplaced faith in these kinds of, this kind of happiness, you will, um, you will actually become more unsatisfied. Called it the happiness of bondage, worldly happiness. And all that happened because he saw somehow his eyes opened to the fact of impermanence, fact of sickness, fact of old age, dying. He happened to also see the example of a mendicant, a monk, someone who was living in the form of their life, was expressing a kind of contentment and simplicity, an ease of being, kind of open-heartedness, a gladness that didn't seem to have any particular condition for it. And he wanted a little bit of that. And I think all of us want a little bit of that. I recently heard this wonderful story about a, somebody who found this, um, this woman found this jewel and then she, maybe other people know this story better than I do, but, and I've now forgotten some of the details, but this fellow came along who was quite um, hungry and poor and she immediately, um, she showed this guy the stone and he immediately said, I want that. And she immediately gave it to him. This precious stone that was, you know, very valuable. And several days later, the fellow came back uh, and gave her the stone back. He says, I don't think I want this stone. I want whatever it is that made you able to give me that stone so easily. That quality of heart that just is full and available. So that was the beginning of his practice. And then he did some some of the elements of what we, what Eugene was saying, we've trained a lot in in our own practice. We develop that muscle of, um, of moment-to-moment attention to a, a particular object, like the breath or our body. And he did that relentlessly, and his mind was filled with, with um, there, he experienced a sense of unification of body and mind, a kind of light, kind of love, and he had a wonderful experience, and he called it uh, a much more refined kind of pleasure than anything he'd had before, and it lasted a little bit longer than the usual linkage of you know, pleasure after pleasure. He called it unmixed happiness, and 
when he was in that, having that experience of his mind that was very concentrated, he, um, he was really suffused with well-being. But then he noticed something. He noticed that it was, it, it was not permanent. He noticed that it would also fade away, just like every other experience. It was also subject to impermanence. And he saw that that wasn't really reliable kind of happiness. So then he tried to just deny himself everything. He denied himself food, figured maybe I can transcend by denying myself all these pleasurable experiences. And that just took him to the other extreme, from the extreme of sense, sensory or sensual what you might call indulgence, wonderful as the sense pleasures are, if you indulge in them, you get, you get all bound up. It's basically what we are taught to do. Before I move on, I want to just share this passage from a teacher named Sogyal Rinpoche. where he talked about how this, this desire for sense pleasures colors our reality in modern times. He says, sometimes that I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. Samsara is this word for endless wandering, endless searching for the, for the next best experience. Modern society seems to me to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction in and around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions, which promise happiness but lead only to misery, we are like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water, designed to make us even thirstier. So this is what happens when we (laughs) go to the extreme of, of devotion to sense pleasures. So what happened when the Buddha went to the extreme of denying of sense pleasures is he just became um, ill, became sick, became tired, became weak-minded. No awakening in it at all, just, just confusion. So this is the fruit of fundamentalism as we become narrow and tight and, and our energy becomes dissipated. So that's... When he played with this in his own experience, using Eugene's notion of playing with it, 
He played. He experimented. It was a creative process. He discovered from his own living experience the things he later taught. And it's at that point that he realized that this, the pathway must be a middle way that includes a, a measure of renunciation and some degree of enjoyment of the pleasures of the senses. He remembered a time when he was young and well-fed and resting under a cherry apple tree and saw that the world of senses, without it, we fail to thrive. But if we become addicted to it, it uh, we'd become blinded to our, the natural mind of the Buddha. So at this point, he was on his own and he, then he, he went back to his meditation practice and he developed, he aroused the, the conditions of immediacy of presence and used some of the training again to anchor himself here and to, to build his energy back up. And he, his mind entered into that state of composure and harmony. But it's said that he didn't allow himself to become enchanted by it. He didn't allow himself uh, to be overtaken by the pleasure of the, of the mind that was so well composed and concentrated. And instead, he simply sat there, not doing anything except noticing what presented itself within the openness of his awareness. And when he did that, he saw that whatever arose passed away. He saw that this, this body was really not a body, but a streaming flow of sensation. In fact, the closer he got, the more subtle the awareness really exp experienced that, what we call our body. There was simply the appearing and disappearing, of vibration, streaming, pulsing, squeezing, temperature, the play of elements. And it began to cut through some of his uh, ideas about himself as so independent and separate. So the gross perceptions of ourself as, as things. And then he explored the moods and the thoughts and the images. And he saw that all of it was appearing and disappearing. And it was happening all by itself. It had a quality of selflessness. And he knew that what was changing and selfless, if there was any attempt to hold on to it, to identify with it, there would be uh, suffering. There would be a kind of mental suffering. And as his mind relaxed, he stopped holding on, he stopped trying to hold on to anything. As he saw, everything's changing. And as he stopped trying to hold on, stopped trying to push anything away, his mind open could include everything. He began to experience a kind of joy that didn't depend on the circumstances of his, what was happening in his mind and body, a joy sometimes called the joy of equanimity. And his mind relaxed. And it seemed as though everything he paid attention to And maybe this is true for you today. The more you paid attention, the brighter your mind became.
Did you feel at any time today that you felt your mind was bright? I know it's the first day. It's a lot of dullness, a lot of get me out of here. (laughs) But I just want to remind you what's in store. Not just what's in store, but what is the inherent nature of your mind. As he paid attention, as you will pay attention, his mind became so bright that, it, that everything that came into it, everything that arose in reality, this strange experience of, of being real, just opening to what's here. It really is, as Eugene was saying, a wow. If you really open to what's here. The Tibetans use this word, emaho, how amazing. Just the fact that we are here and having this experience, this is not usually the way we think. Usually we're thinking about our problems. But when we're really here, what could be more interesting than the fact that we can understand each other, as we were saying last night? That these senses register experience that we can see, that we can hear, that we can smell, that we can taste, that we can feel, that we can resonate. Emma Ho, how amazing. Can anything really improve on this? It's an open, that's why it's sometimes called an open secret. It's right here. That's why Ramakrishna said, O longing mind, dwell within the depths of your own nature right here. Do not seek your home elsewhere. He culminates it by saying, your, your naked awareness, just the fact of being aware here, your naked awareness alone is the inexhaustible abundance that you've been longing for so desperately. Just the fact of being aware and awake. So as the Buddha's mind shined in its clarity, he began to see that it was, that the nature of his mind was, even though normally we're visited by all kinds of torments, as you may have been today, you were visited with the wanting mind, wanting anything but what was happening here, wanting a nap, waiting for the Dharma talk, waiting for the meal, waiting for the end of the sitting, as though the end of the sitting was the secret to happiness. <laughs> the aversive mind, everyone is the cause of my misery. Even somebody coming through the door late, it's all about me and hurting, affecting my practice and a lot of reactivity and ill will. So we're visited by all of these, and usually we get carried along by the stream of the narrative that goes with each one, the stream of doubt, saying, oh, everybody else looks like Buddhas, and I'm a miserable <laughs> meditator. Everybody can get it except me. And then, and then all the projections of when do I get out of here, or... We're carrying the corpses of previous retreats and trying to replicate the experience that we had from the last one. All of those are torments of the mind. So usually we get caught up in that. 
But when our mind is awake, as the Buddha said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is colored by all those defilements of visit. And this, people who aren't awake don't understand, and so they don't cultivate their mind. But then he says, luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is untouched by all these defilements that visit, these states of the heart and mind. Thus the yogi understands, and there, therefore there is cultivation of our, of our heart and mind. So as his mind rested in this kind of freedom, this sense of a happiness that didn't seem to de- depend on what was going on in his mind. And he had all kinds of doubts and, and ideas of he should be you know, getting up and who did he think he was. And we all have those little voices. Everybody else can get enlightened, but enlightened, not me. But he started to be able to see that is just thoughts, just stories. Just the old top ten tunes. And you've probably all heard this before. He, it's often personified by the mythical figure Mara, these voices in our mind. He said, Mara, I see you. You shall not build this whole edifice of imaginary me anymore. And as his mind just stopped grabbing, stopped pushing away, it opened. It just opened. And he realized what I've been looking for is, is what's looking. Very nature of my own mind. So he had gone through a whole process. And through that whole process, he realized what people need to see, basically they need to see 12 things. They need to see that first that I spoke about before, that life has difficulties. Second thing you need to see, you need to be able to, to say, I, you need to, there's a prescription for dealing with it. Welcome it. Open to it. Open to the places where life is difficult. Otherwise, your life will be an endless running from the silence that is available to you, the peace and freedom that is available. In other words, if you can't handle the first noble truth, you will end up in the second one, which is the cause of mental torment, is this chronic tendency of wanting things to be different than the way they are. That expresses itself as this incessant need for what's next, the incessant desire to get rid of or to have more of, the desire to become someone, something, constantly in pursuit of of a happiness in the future that never arrives. So we have to be able to abandon what one storyteller called the 84th problem. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. 
Likewise with his children. Yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted either. When he was finished, he asked how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. And what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, my teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but it can, perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that, asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. So with the, first, with the first truth, with the first truth, the f- truth that life has difficulties, the Buddha said, this must be open to or welcomed. And one, one has to be able to say, yes, I have seen this as it is. I've sat in the middle of it. I've let my heart break. I've let myself feel. Because if we open to the difficulties of our life, our hearts break. You don't have to look very far. But it turns out that that heartbreak, that heartbreak is what settles not just our heart, but it settles our mind. It connects us with life. It makes us, it reduces that feeling that we're cut off from the flow of life, that we're separate from one another. We start to realize our place in the family of things. As one poet put it, we repose in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. We ease ourselves into the boundless right where it touches us. We connect with everything. But as long as we're running from silence, running from ourselves, running from the fact of whatever difficulty may be presenting itself, we wander endlessly astray in, the, in a kind of vicious cycle, as Sogyo Rinpoche says, with false hopes and dreams. So it doesn't mean you need to turn dukkha, things that are difficult to bear, into a religion. You just have to experience the truth of it. Don't have to build a, a story about it, an idea about it. That's depressing. You just have to face it moment to moment. And if you do, it actually makes you available for the moments that are joyous, wondrous, emaho, or wow. But if we're, if we're running from silence, there's no rest. Our bodies tighten, minds spin. So since none of us have completely come into harmony with dukkha, with the first noble truth, the Buddha provided the second truth, the cause of our mental suffering, what turns our basic 
difficulties into mental suffering is this chronic tendency to be in a state of craving, wanting, not wanting, becoming, toppling forward. And he had a prescription for dealing with this habit. He's, at least it's, un, it's understood that he said, uh, relinquish this cause, let go. How do we let go? The way we let go is we notice. A moment of noticing is a moment of letting go. Notice the mind that wants the bell to ring. Normally we're caught up in the image of what we want, right? The story of what we want. Often don't feel the experience of wanting or waiting or hoping. But when we let ourselves experience that, Just meet it with mindful, heartful, bodyful attention, as Eugene says. That experience of wanting, waiting, it shows itself as the reality of that moment, but as a changing condition like the weather. It rises and vanishes. And often the bell hasn't even rung yet, and we're at peace. We're no longer held hostage by what's next no longer living in a state of suspended happiness. We're actually here, experiencing wanting or waiting. So even those torments, those things that actually make us think that we can't be happy now, those very experiences are the ones that become our path. Because they're really, in some ways, there's no path. But the path is to see what obscures what clouds our perception of reality, what makes us think we can't be happy. So we want to notice that. And in noticing, we abandon the cause. We let go. The whole teaching is about letting go. As Ajahn Chah, great forest master, put it, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. And as one of his students said, and practiced, reduce your entire practice down to two words, let go. Rather than, as his his student, his name is Ajahn Sumedho, he says, rather than try to develop this practice and that practice and go into this and do this and do that and learn learn Pali and Sanskrit and the Majamakan, the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, you know, all these things. Instead of doing all that and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, just let go. (laughs) He said, I did nothing but that for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go until the desire would fade out. He says, I'm trying to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. He says, there's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) So this is not something just done in the abstract. It's every single moment we let go. We experience whatever version of dukkha you may be having. If you're driving down the road, as I have been before, and there's a driver that... uh, 
that is going too slow or too fast or aggressive, and your mind goes, hate that person. This is dukkha. You're contracted. You're running a little story. You're in a state of suspended happiness. Unless they get off the road, you'll never be happy. That's the cause of it is, is being attached, craving to a view and opinion of how people should drive. And if I notice that, ah, oh, that's the, there's the first truth, there's the second truth. And if I feel that, oh, it, it starts to fade. Ah, this is the third truth. There's an end to this mental suffering. There's a capacity that we have to be free and at ease. And the Buddha's prescription for that reality of the end of dukkha is is, it must be realized. You have to know it for yourself in real time. You can't just know it in the abstract. That's never satisfied anyone. (coughs) Moment by moment, we actually experience these truths. And then finally, the Buddha said that there, there is, um, as he discovered, there is a path that we can create out of our moment-to-moment experience of reality that um, can lead us to um, the same realization of freedom that, that he had. I love the, the title of our retreat, even though neither of us really looked at it carefully until, well, I didn't until we got here. But it was discovering the, discovering in some ways to me is uncovering what's always here. But there is a path for uncovering. And it goes nowhere. As this great Japanese monk poet Ryokan put it, Buddha is your mind. And the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? So we, this path begins right here. It's called the Four Noble Truth. There is a path. The path is dealing with whatever presents itself as our path. So the path is, the beginning of the path is here. The path is here. The end of the path is here. And it ha- the path has within it three, three main parts. It has eight limbs, but three main parts. And the three main parts could be described as the three, three kinds of happiness, the development of happiness. First part is the purification of our actions, the happiness of, uh, sometimes called the bliss of blamelessness, the happiness that comes from living a non-harming life and how that lays the foundation for being able to to, uh, not live in regret and replay of everything that we've done that has caused harm. It allows our mind to come to a place of balance and ease. So purification of action includes wise livelihood, wise action, wise speech. Then purification of mind, which is what we're doing, which is cultivating um, the wholesome state of being aware, getting used to it, 
training our attention to, to, glad, to gladden our heart, to fill our hearts with things that are wholesome and, and uh, like generosity and kindness and maintaining those qualities that bring happiness in our lives. And developing just moment to moment mindful attention to what's happening. And finally, the third, that's purification of mind. And then finally, the third part is what's called purification of view, or the happiness of insight. One is the happy, the second is the happiness of a mind that is, is collected and composed and concentrated. Then there's the happiness of insight, which includes wise thought, intention, the intention to, to be kind, the intention to uh, be simple and contented, the, in, the intention to be non-harming, and then the wise understanding of these truths that I spoke of tonight, that life has within it difficulties, the cause, what turns those difficulties into mental suffering is our chronic tendency to be in a state of wanting things to be other than they are, that there's an end to that stress of grasping that peace is there, open and inviting, and that there's a path. So the whole of this practice, everything that we're doing, is on behalf of awakening. Awakening to the mind of the natural mind of the Buddha, but also with that awakening becomes a clear reflection, clear mirroring of the, an unvarnished view of, the, of each of our individual and our collective lives. And um, hopefully you will fall in love with this process. And I'm happy you made it at least through fr the first day of this difficult love affair and uh, to be continued. So let's sit quietly. <laughs> 